0: I know it happened almost a week ago, which is ancient history in internet podcast Twitter time. But I was going to talk at the top of the show about Ted Cruz and how Ted Cruz chose Carly Fiorina as his running mate before having secured the nomination. And as it's looking increasingly unlikely that he will secure the nomination, we are waiting for results from Indiana today. It is Tuesday, they're voting in Indiana. Ted Cruz is probably being handed his ass right now as you listen by voters in Indiana. But I ran across somebody else online ranting about Ted Cruz and his choice of Carly Fiorina. And sometimes you just got to know when to get out of the way. Sometimes you have to acknowledge the superior rant and the superior ranter. And so with his permission, I am just going to play The three-and-a-half-minute clip that Charles M. Blow, op-ed columnist for the New York Times, author of the book Fire Shut Up in My Bones, a memoir about his childhood, terrific book. You should get it and read it. He posted this to his Facebook page last week in reaction to Ted Cruz picking Carly Fiorina. And now I am just going to sit back and listen to it again with you because it is genius and he says everything I wanted to say, but he says it better. Charles M. Blow.
2: Okay, hello Facebook. I just finished watching Ted Cruz pick Carly Fiorina as his vice presidential choice and running mate, and I just cannot get enough of what I just saw. First of all, when uh, when did we start having losing candidates picking vice presidential nom- nominees? What are you talking about? You lose. You're losing horribly. What are y'all trying to lose together? Y'all going down together? Like what? You need help to lose? You know, that's the old song is I can do bad by myself. You can do bad by yourself. You don't need Carla Fiorina. And and Carly, you've been making the wrong choices ever since you ran Hewlett-Packard into the ground. You've been losing. You've been on Team Lose ever since you ran (laughs) Hewlett-Packard into the ground. Seriously? (laughs) Okay, first, let me back up to, to Ted Cruz. Lord, just forgive me for this because I just got to get this off. I just, I just, I'm like George W. Bush. I just don't like that guy. I, it's something about him that just just oozes ambition and he just feels so sleazy. And then, and the way he like uh, almost, you know, took the country to the brink of destruction with shutting down the government and just everything about you is just says a wrong, all sorts of wrong. I can't get with it. will will never like you. It's never going to happen. Not for me you know people do like you that's good for them it's just not my thing right so there's that but then he's he comes out he starts talking and you know doing the introduction and he's talking like you know all this laudatory talk and i'm like wait i thought he was introducing carla fiorina (laughs) so he's talking and talking and talking and i'm like who is he talking about I mean, I'm thinking he's talking about, like, Mother Teresa. No, I mean, like, I'm thinking he's talking about she Jesus. Like, this is somebody who's about to walk out here on water, bend down, scoop down, grab a cup of it, turn it into into wine, reach into a tomb and breathe some life back into Lazarus. I'm talking about, like, he is talking about somebody who is amazing. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Are you talking about Carla Fiorina? Ran Hugh Packer into the ground? Carla Fiorina? Nobody at Hugh Packer liked her, Carla Fiorina? made Hewlett Packard ship her yacht from the East Coast to the West Coast Call of the Arena? That Call of the Arena? <laughs> it was just comedy. Like, I mean, and, I'm, and I keep thinking, like, wait, you two may be the least likable two people to run in all of 2006 on either side of the ticket. And you two are going to... The- <laughs> it's, just, it's the funniest thing in the world. And then she comes out and... She starts she goes into a song about Ted Cruz. <laughs> like, what are you singing? Is that lemonade? Like, what are you <laughs> Girl, what are you talking about? Stop singing. That's not how you do this. And I just I kept like watching and listening. I'm thinking like, you really just must have this incredible nagging ambition and desire to be in the White House because I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why you would even allow this to happen. I don't understand why you would allow him to pick you while he is losing. This whole thing is just a disaster and a mess. Ted Cruz, dude, take a seat. Take a stadium full of seats. Take an Olympic – go to Rio, find the biggest Olympic stadium, and sit down in every one of those seats. You are losing – This is not the move. This is not going to save you. This is not going to make this work. Anyway, I just had to get this off my chest. Facebook, put whatever you want to put into the comments, and I'm done.
0: That was Charles M. Blow, op-ed columnist for The New York Times. Get his book, Fire Shut Up, In My Bones, his memoir. Thank you, Charles, for your permission to play that for my listeners. Please, Charles, in addition to your wonderful column in The New York Times, And please, Charles, I think I speak for everyone when I say, in addition to your terrific column in the New York Times, we want more online impromptu off-the-cuff rants posted to your Facebook page. Amazing. Quickly, speaking of Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz has been running around the country hoping to win in Indiana today by demagoguing about the supposed threat that trans women pose to little girls, including his daughters. In public restrooms. There are no cases that right wing hater bigots can point to of trans women exploiting civil rights protections for LGBT people to creep on or assault or molest or rape little girls in public restrooms in this country. But it's not stopping bigots like Ted Cruz from demagoguing about it, which is dangerous for the trans community in so many ways, which we have talked about at length on this show before. I just want to say that in honor of Ted Cruz, I have brought back Youth Pastor Watch, which was a regular feature on my blog, Slog, my group blog with my coworkers at The Stranger, during the run up to the marriage equality victory, because they were saying they had to protect the children from the marrying gays when the children, their children, were being molested and raped by their youth pastors by the scores and droves in their churches. And so I had this little post, a little weekly post, just listing the youth pastors who got arrested in the last seven days for raping kids, none of whom are ever trans and rarely ever gay married. Anyway, Youth Pastor Watch is back in honor of Ted Cruz and to remind Americans where the real danger lurks. Not trans women in bathrooms, not trans urinators that are a danger to your kids, but their youth pastors. Go to Slog at The Stranger to check that out. All right, coming up on today's show, we have tons of your questions. Plus, Alice Dreger is here. We're going to talk about her new book, The Talk, Helping Your Kids Navigate Sex in the Real World. That's in the magnum, all on today's show.
3: Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old straight male living on the West Coast. I was dating a girl last year, and we were in love. She had been dating another guy before me, and they went on a break because he was moving abroad. After he came back, he tried to win her back, but she rejected him consistently because of me. I then worked abroad for three months and we decided to stay together during my time away so we could be together when I got back. But one week before I got back, she broke up with me over email, saying it was because she was back with the other guys. Now that I'm home, she visits once a week or so to make sushi and hook up with me, even though she is still with him. She has told me she is open with him about what her and I do together. She expresses guilt about double-timing the both of us, but then says things to me like, I can only come when thinking about you even when I'm with him. I don't want to share her with anyone. And I want it to be like it was before. She's confused about what she wants, even though I'm not. Is there any healthy way I can stay with her? Or am I crazy to stay in the situation? And should I just get out?
0: I can only come thinking about you. She tells you when she hooks up with you when she fucks you. And being the sort of suspicious, cynical person that I am, I I'm sitting here wondering what she tells him she's thinking when she hooks up with you, when she fucks you. Seems to me like you're in a poly relationship and you are very much the secondary. He gets her six days a week. You get her one day a week. And if that's not acceptable to you, stop fucking her. Stop seeing her. If you want her all to yourself, you have to put that ultimatum on the table. You have to lay that down. You have to say to her, look. This isn't acceptable to me. I didn't want to be in a polyamorous relationship. I don't want to be your secondary. I don't want to be your piece on the side. So you've got to choose it's him or it's me right now. She's choosing him six days a week and you one day a week. So when you lay this down, I think you're not going to be her choice in the end. I think she's going to choose him. I think she already is choosing him. So you need to brace yourself for that. Near inevitability that when you issue the ultimatum, the answer is going to be not you. But you said you don't want to settle for this. You said you don't want to be her one night a week sushi making piece on the side. Tell her that. And then when she says, okay, bye, you either stick to it and don't see her anymore. Don't make sushi for her anymore. Don't fuck her anymore. Or you accept her terms, the terms she's already issued, which are – you get me one day a week, he gets me six days a week, and I'd like the patty tuna, please.
4: Hi, Dan, I'm calling about my sister. Um, she's in her early 30s and has been in a secret relationship with a teacher for about seven years. Um, she told me about six years ago and uh, told my mom about a year ago after my mom confronted her. As far as I know, she hasn't told Anyone else. And um, for a lot of reasons, this is obviously not a great situation. It's a secret relationship. He's her teacher, he's 20 years older than her. And they live together, but they have separate bedrooms. um, And um, there are many ways in which (laughs) there's a very unhealthy power dynamic. And um, so, obviously, I want her to leave this relationship, but I can't force her to do it. So I'm just wondering if you have any advice for being a supportive sister, helping my sister uh, choose to leave this relationship.
0: So. What's the problem? Isn't your sister an adult? You know, you say she's in a relationship with a teacher and immediately my mind went to she's a 19-year-old college student, he's her professor, he has some power over her, he's this Rasputin Bengali and but she's an adult and he's an adult and they live together and she's in her 30s and presumably he's not her teacher. What's the problem here?
4: He's like her spiritual teacher and it's kind of like a culty situation and my main problem is that oh. he won't admit they're in a relationship. He thinks they're in a relationship, but he's pretending they're not in a relationship.
0: And you've hashed this out with your sister. You've discussed this with yeah. your sister. And she chooses to stay with him despite this. Yeah. All right, nothing you can do. Back the fuck away. Yeah. Not your monkeys, not your circus, like your sister's an adult. You can, you know, all you can do with adult, you know, your siblings, your friends, is you can tell them what you think they ought to do. You can tell them what you think is fucked up. And then you have to stand back and let them make their own choices, even if they're not the choices you would have them make.
4: Yeah, but she wants me to, like, become friends with him and be nice
0: to him. (laughs) Then you just tell her, I don't like your boyfriend very much, and I'd love to see you, and I want to hang out with you, but not I don't want to hang out with him at the same time. So let's have girls' nights out and sister sleepovers or whatever people do with their yeah. sisters uh but you know i don't i don't think he's a really good dude and i don't like the way he treats you so long as your relationship is a secret i don't think i want to spend a lot of time with him you get to you know you have to respect her right to make her choice and you should tell her that i'm respecting your right to make your own choices but she has to respect your concurrent right to make your own goddamn choices and whether or not you hang out with her you, in your belief shitty boyfriend is a choice you get to make
5: yeah,
0: I can, okay. you, can, you can love and support her without having to make nice with her boyfriend if you think he's a jerk and don't enjoy spending yeah. time with him, but it's not your job to take a crowbar to this and pry your sister off him. <laughs> you, you, you're not failing as a sibling if you can't talk her out of dating this guy if he's an asshole. Yeah.
4: Okay. Thank you. Good luck.
5: Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old lesbian in New York City, and I need your help. I have a friend that is, at this point in my life, someone I would consider my best friend. I've known him for two years, but we've gotten particularly close over the last six to eight months. We have an amazing time together. We have a lot in common and enough not in common to keep it interesting. We hang out all the time. We've gone on vacation together, and he has become an important sounding board for me. He is easily the person I spend the most time with. However, he's he's exhibited some behaviors that have thrown up some red flags for me. These behaviors have to do with the way he treats women he is romantically interested in. He objectifies them often and sometimes pushes their personal boundaries or just generally treats them in ways I would consider disrespectful or at least inconsiderate. This is especially surprising considering how many women friends he has in his life and how well he treats them. This has started to creep into my life as an issue because he hooked up with a few of my friends, including two of my roommates. There have been a few annoying or uncomfortable situations, but nothing too serious until now. Yesterday, I got a call from one of my best girlfriends. I've known her for over seven years, and we are extremely close. She knows my best guy friend, and we have all hung out a few times, always in groups, but they're definitely familiar with each other. The last time we were together was about a month ago at a party where the three of us had taken on the role of DJ, using primarily her phone to do it. About a week ago, three weeks after the party, they exchanged numbers for the first time. She called me yesterday to tell me she looked at their past text history on her computer And on the night of the party, there were 10 naked photos of her sent from her phone to his number. She did not have his number saved at the time, so it would have had to be manually entered. These messages do not appear in the text history on her phone, suggesting the person who sent them deleted the text messages to cover the tracks. She confronted him and he is taking the stance of not knowing what she's talking about at all and claiming he has never seen the photos and did not receive any. And I have no idea what to do. I spoke to him briefly, and he held strong to not knowing what could have happened. And I have to say, he was pretty convincing. But my gut tells me this is not so far out of the realm of things he would do, and now I am not sure how to move forward. If it was any other person who had done this to my friend, I would be beating down their door or suggesting legal action. And I am definitely firmly on their side. I think this is a horrible, disgusting, and quite frankly, pathetic violation. But is my friendship with him simply over? This would be a huge loss for me. But how can I trust him around my friends now? Am I being selfish for wanting there to be some other explanation? Also, how can I even start a conversation with him if he continues to claim he did not do it? How can I be the best to my friend who was violated? Lastly, he's still hooking up with one of my roommates. Should I tell her?
0: One of the things you often hear or, or, or witness when you have a friend who's in an abusive relationship is that the abuser is so nice, so charismatic, and that sometimes shocks people. Such a nice guy, so charismatic. I can't square the way he treats women or treated my sister or treated me with the person that he is. And this isn't actually that hard to square. No one would hang out long enough to be abused by someone who is abusive if they were not charismatic, if they were repulsive in every possible way, if what's shitty about them in these particulars was shitty about them in the totality. No one would ever get into a romantic relationship with an abuser or a user Or someone who's a predatory piece of shit. Or someone who routinely pushes women's boundaries and violates women. You are in a relationship with an abuser. He's not fucking you. But he's using you to prey upon your friends and acquaintances. His friendship with you vouches to your friends and roommates and acquaintances vouches for him. Your relationship with him is opening doors and dropping panties and leaving phones open and vulnerable to him. You've got to cut this motherfucker out of your life. You've got to stop being his friend. Yes, he's charismatic. Yes, he is in some ways a great guy. And that is a strategy that this actual shitty guy is employing to prey upon your friends. Now that you know this, now that you've gathered enough evidence, now that you've witnessed this Happening often enough to know better, you are complicit in these acts. You are enabling him to prey upon your roommates and your friends by continuing to be his buddy. Because again, your relationship with him, your friends and roommates look to that as evidence, as a reassurance that he's a good guy. That they can trust him because you trust him. Because you two are such great friends and they like and respect and trust you so much that they then believe that he is Someone that they can like and trust as well. Stop allowing him to use you like this. Stop making your friends and your roommates vulnerable to him in this way. Stop assisting this shitbag. End the relationship, end the friendship. Tell him why you're ending the friendship. Tell him he needs therapy and help before he gets arrested for pulling a stunt like this, which is in his future if he doesn't. Knock it the fuck off. Tell him to stop pushing women's boundaries. Tell him to stop violating women's privacy and go and apologize to your roommates and friends for whatever small role you played unintentionally in his successful exploitation of them. And absolutely, you need to give a heads up to the woman he's seeing now, to your roommate, the woman he's hooking up with now about the person you now know him to be. Because she's probably hooking up with him because she looked to your relationship with him, again, as evidence that he was okay and decent and a good guy because he wouldn't be your friend if he wasn't. Now you know him not to be a good guy, and you need to go and share that information with your roommate.
6: Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old gay man living in Denver, and I've recently started going to the local gay bathhouse, um, and two weeks ago... I ended up hooking up with this incredibly sexy couple. Um, It was hot. It was wonderful. And recently I've been texting uh, both of the guys in the couple. Um, However, one of the uh, guys has been sexting me, sending me, you know, pictures of him naked and videos and all this stuff. And he's really intent on hooking up again. But it sounds like he's not interested in including his boyfriend. I think they might be married. Uh, including his significant other in it. And this guy is so attractive. I'm just so turned on by him. But I don't want to be the the other guy who breaks up a relationship or, you know, causes distress for them. so I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on this. And uh, even if I should tell the other guy that his wife is sending this or if that's just stepping over the line, if I should just ignore it altogether. Um, But any advice would be greatly appreciated.
0: Use your words. All you need to text to this guy after he sends you a video or a few pictures, the next time he does that, just text him back and say, yeah, you're totally up for hooking up with him alone. Is it okay with your boyfriend? Is this okay with your boyfriend? Because I don't want to cause trouble in your relationship. And see what he says. My hunch is that it's okay with his boyfriend. My hunch is the kind of gay couple that is going to bathhouses and having three ways with guys they just met hook up alone and together with others. Ask the guy what's up. Ask him if it's okay. That's where you start. You don't start with, I'm going to rat you out to your boyfriend, because then he's not going to hook up with you, even if it's okay with his boyfriend for him to hook up with you. He's not going to hook up with you. If your first impulse was to run and tell, text and ask. Ask him. Ask him what's up. That's where you start.
7: Hey, Dan. So this is a bad breakup question, how to deal with some of the remaining feelings afterwards uh, I was in a relationship with this girl for almost two years 23 uh, and it was okay it got really heavy right away uh, a lot of warning signs that I really kind of overlooked because we were just like having a lot of sex and having a lot of fun and she was you know just seemed really great um, but then you know we moved in together and the clause came out and it was just uh, like a lot of negativity like a lot of emotional abuse tried to cut me off from my friends and the things that I like to do before we got together. And I just, I really loved her and I just didn't see it that I was kind of just enabling this horrible situation, horrible, horrible, horrible. She was just on some like pretty hateful shit. So, um, at the end of last year, she gets tired of me, I guess. Uh, so she's moving out, says we're not together anymore. And then, puts me through this humiliating breakup process, kicks me out of my place for two weeks while she gets her shit together, takes a bunch of my stuff when she leaves, uh, you know, the worst. Rubs my face in this, like, new relationship she's just started and, like, rip me off for a bunch of money, too, uh, for, like, a lot of money. So when I come back to my house, uh, I don't have any furniture. I have to make this humiliating call to my landlord. Just, like, the worst, just the worst. I was super burnt. I just got super burnt by this crazy person, and, you know, I'm not, like, blaming her entirely for all that, for the destabilization of my life, but it was it was painful. It was incredibly painful, and she did some really shitty things to me, and so for a month, I wallowed, and chased past, and drank, and whined to my friends, and just laid around, and did nothing, and mourned, if you will, and tried to comfort myself, and it's been... Almost four months since we broke up, and I'm off all the self-pitying bullshit, and I'm trying to stop drinking, stop smoking. I go to the gym now. I, like, take really good care of myself. I'm in great shape. From the outside, everything looks really great. Like, started trying to see a few people, but I, I'm holding them at arm's length because I have this, like, spite in me. This, this, I want recourse. Like, I just still carry around this, like, burning negativity, man. I, I want I want to get it back. I was wronged, and I wish that I could do something about it. And I know I can't, but it just it's like keeping me from moving on, and I'm just raw, and I'm ready to get over with it. And I don't know what I can do. I don't know what I do to get rid of the feeling. And I was just wondering if you have any advice about that.
0: There's really nothing I can tell you to do that you're not already doing, and doing right. The wallowing, the whining to your friends, the getting out there and chasing ass. Now the getting off the sauce and going to the gym and stopping smoking and trying to move on. You're doing all the right things. You're doing all the things that people are told to do after a bad breakup or any breakup. And all breakups are really bad. And there's nothing else I can add except this really is a very common experience, which you're going through, including nursing the anger and holding on to the anger and then beating yourself up for holding on to the anger. As if you really had a choice right now. You're just still mad and still hurt and not enough time has passed. Four months may seem like an eternity, particularly if you weren't with this girl for very long. But in reality, four months, 16 weeks, that ain't that long a time to heal from what was a really traumatic experience. Not just the theft of your possessions and all the other shit that went down, but also the feeling that – and that scalding feeling that – you picked the wrong person, that you made a terrible decision, that you made a terrible choice. It can make you doubt your own judgment. It can make you doubt your own abilities, romantic abilities, sexual abilities, your own cognitive abilities. And that, I think, can reinforce the anger because you don't want to necessarily look inside and think, what did I do wrong? You know, when you're victimized in this way or any other way, You don't want to sit around thinking, what was my role in this? And a lot of the sort of culture encourages people who've been victimized not to think, what did I do wrong? You were the victim. You did nothing wrong. You were victimized. The victimizer is wholly to blame. But sometimes we left the door unlocked. We opened the door. We laid out the welcome mat. We invited the devil in and you invited the devil in. She was a shitty person and you invited her in and it may help you to let go of the anger going forward. You need to ask yourself, what were the mistakes that I made? There were the shitty things that she did. Were there red flags that I missed? Could I have extracted myself from this relationship sooner? Were there moments when I kind of knew I needed to end it, but my ego was too invested in this, or I didn't want to be alone, or I didn't want to feel like I had failed at love. I didn't want to ask her to move out shortly after she moved in because I didn't want to inconvenience her, make her feel bad even though she was making me feel terrible. Were there moments? Were there things that you did or could have done differently that would have gotten you out of this relationship sooner and perhaps resulted in her being able to do less damage to you emotionally, financially, apartmentally than she wound up doing? And identifying those things, identifying what you missed, committing yourself to Acting when you see those same red flags in the future, committing yourself to not making the same mistakes that you may have made that made it easier for that person to abuse you, that can be very empowering. That can help you let go of the anger. One of the reasons you may be holding on to the anger right now is because consciously or subconsciously, you realize on some level that you are still vulnerable to the same kind of abuse or abuser or manipulation. At the hands of another shitty person. And if you really think about the forks in the road where you chose the wrong path and commit yourself to not making those same mistakes again in the future because there are other mistakes you will be able to make in the future instead, that might help you let go of some of the anger. That might help you regard the anger as having some utility, of having some purpose, of having benefited you in some way. Look to the failure of this relationship. Look to – not the failure of this relationship. Look to this shitshow of a relationship and take from it what you can that is going to protect you down the road. And then maybe you won't be so angry at her anymore or maybe you won't be so angry at yourself anymore for having made yourself vulnerable to her. And you know what? Maybe you're going to look back over this entire relationship, over the the whole history of it, and there were no red flags that you missed. There were no forks in the road where you made the wrong choice, that this was just the universe being colossally unfair. This was just a meteor strike, just random, unexpected, no way to predict calamity visited upon you. And that can be maddening. That can make somebody feel really angry because there was nothing you could have done differently that would have prevented this horrible thing from happening. So your rage and your anger can be outward directed at just the unfairness and randomness of the fucking universe, including the romantic universe as well. So shake your fist at the sky if that's the only thing you have to shake your fist at. And give it more time. Four months is not a long time to get over a shitty traumatic relationship. Give yourself a year. Keep hitting the gym. Keep not smoking. Keep getting out there. Keep not whining to your friends anymore about this. Go to your friends and listen to them whine to you. Be useful to your friends in the way that they have been useful to you over the last four months. It is hard, as Spencer Tracy once said in a movie, the name of which I cannot remember, to feel sorry for yourself when you are being useful to others. So get out there and be useful to others, and hopefully your anger will dissipate.
1: Hey, Dan. I'm a cisgendered female uh, living in the Pacific Northwest who loves your show. I'm 25 years old, and I'm dating a 33-year-old. We're in a great relationship. Really love him and love our sex and all the stuff. But I'm a little bit more kinky than he is. So recently um, I brought that up to him and said, hey, I want to try some different things, and we've been exploring, and it's been really good. The other day when we were having a kink on the couch, he said, spit in my mouth, which we had never talked about before, and I had no idea was something he was into, so I was really surprised, but I just went with it, and I did it, and surprisingly found myself orgasming like crazy right afterwards. So I was just wondering maybe to your listeners, is this like something other people do or want, um, and maybe if there's any other advice you can give me on this kind of thing? Is it, I don't know, like a humiliation thing? I don't know. I know you're probably going to just tell me to talk to him about it, but I am just curious what other people's experiences have been with this spitting thing.
0: Absolutely. It's a humiliation thing and a degradation thing and a kind of violence that doesn't hurt anybody. Nobody ever died of a concussion because somebody spit in their mouth or spit in their face. It is a ritualized, kind of eroticized Expression of intense contempt. That's what you – you spit in someone's face. You spit in their mouth. It's – there's nothing more contemptuous that you can do to another human being than spit on them, right? And this is your boyfriend who obviously likes you, inviting you to treat him in this way that's violently – symbolically violently – contemptuous and dismissive and degrading and humiliating and all of those things that – can be, in the right context and with the right person, really hot, orgasm-inducing hot, as you yourself experienced. It's not hard to unpack what this means. You don't have to rely on the calls that will come in from others who enjoy this, and you can see this in tons of porn, tons of porn where people are spitting each other's face, spitting each other's mouths. It's out there. You should run with this. Obviously, it worked for you, being given by your boyfriend His consent to treat him in this symbolically violent way and to degrade him in this way really tapped into some powerful erotic buzz for you. If you were climaxing as a result of it or immediately after it, it pushed you over the top. There's something about that. Not necessarily about the spitting because it never occurred to you to do this. There's something about that, that degrading him, that having that kind of power over your sex partner in that moment with his consent, that turns you the fuck on. And there's lots of other ways to explore those power dynamics erotically and safely with other consenting adults or with this particular consenting adult. And congratulations, you've tapped into a vein that you didn't know – existed, that you didn't know was there, and your boyfriend and you talking about getting kinky, talking about mixing things up, you discovered something about yourself that you will then be able to explore at more length and to more orgasmic heights. Congratulations. This is an exciting moment for you. You've discovered something about yourself that's powerful and interesting and pleasurable that got you off and got him off too. Kudos, Yahtzee.
8: Hey, Dan. I'm currently on my year abroad, and I met this really great guy. I've been dating for about five months. We communicate through our second language, which is fine for the most part. Like, we can communicate pretty well, but I'm really into dirty talking, but I don't really know how to sort of navigate that area since, you know, it's not going to be in my first language or his first language, and... I don't I don't understand any Korean, and he doesn't know a lot of English, so it kind of feels a bit awkward to express myself in my second language.
0: I have some experience, personal experience, with the dirty talk language barrier. I lived in Germany in the 1980s, and I messed around a little bit. I even had a German boyfriend for a while, and my German boyfriend spoke not very much English. But here is the thing that I noticed about... The German guys that I got with, even the ones who spoke no English at all, they spoke perfect porn English because they watched a lot of American porn. So this guy who had this beautiful German accent who spoke next to no English would suddenly, when you were having sex, be like, yeah, suck my dick. Suddenly he would sound like a surfer boy of California because they've been watching so much like 80s porn which was all california surfer guys and this guy who could barely get out three words in english that were decipherable could speak sex english gay sex english perfectly i knew exactly what he wanted i knew exactly what we were doing he knew exactly what to say and it was kind of fun and charming and the first time it happened Ridiculous. I I bust out laughing the first time it happened because it took me by surprise. I expect your Korean boyfriend may have been exposed to enough American pornography over there to have some sex porn English of his own. Your other option is to encourage him to speak dirty to you in his language and for you to speak dirty to him in your language. It's kind of sexy for someone to say something dirty to you in a language that you don't understand And it's kind of edifying if somebody says, I want you to do this in their language and you don't understand it. And then they physically, you know, with your consent, gently, and everybody's getting along, physically moves you into the position that they just described wanting you in. You may pick up some Korean along the way. And he, conversely, may pick up some English as you say dirty shit to him. And he is then positioned in the position you wanted him in or you get him to do the thing that you're describing wanting done. Sounds super hot. This is not actually a problem if you approach it with the right attitude. Talk dirty to me in Korean. I will talk dirty to you in English. And with the added layer of physical communication, physical language, we will come to understand each other in every sense of the word.
9: Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 494. I typically really agree with all of your advice, and I really enjoy your podcast. I've been listening for years. But it took exception to uh, the statement that you made that women should not date homophobic men because homophobic men are not going to approve of the woman because basically they don't like gay men because they remind them of women, and they don't like women. Yeah, I feel sad about that statement. I've been dating a homophobic man for four years. It comes from a very small town, a very sheltered life, and a religious upbringing, and he's an amazing man, and he treats me really well, and I talk to him about uh, homosexuals. I have a lot of homosexual friends. I'm actually bisexual myself. I've told him that. I've explained my feelings around it, and I'm slowly educating him. He wasn't, uh, you know, around that type of education or that type of culture growing up, and he's homophobic. He has a phobia of gay people. He doesn't understand them and i'm trying to educate him but he's a beautiful man so please i just uh discourage blanket statements against people you know can we all come to understand each other better through uh discussion and communication
0: if you want to fuck some sense into this homophobe knock yourself out i actually approve you know, there are people out there who don't get over their phobias or their hatreds or their racism or their sexism or their whatevers until they fall in love with someone, until they're physically and romantically attracted to someone with someone who challenges them on that shit. And that is a legitimate way to rewire the homophobe. I'm not going to take it back though. Somebody who's a homophobe is also a misogynist invariably, inevitably – Homophobes don't hate gay men because we remind them of women because we're all so effeminate and carry purses because not all of us are effeminate. Not all of us carry purses, although some of us are and some of us do and that's fine too. What homophobes typically have a problem with gay men about is the fact that we have in their fevered imaginations taken on the female role, that we are penetrated, that we are passive and that we are submissive sexually, that we are entered. And that – problem with us is really kind of a problem with women. Somebody who has a problem with gay men because they are penetrated also is going to look at women as less than because they are penetrated. It is really about power and who has more and who has less. And to look at gay men and perceive them as having given up their power as men to be with men, to be penetrated by men, to become like women – And all of this posits that the men fucking us, that that all gay men are bottoms and that the guys fucking them aren't gay men somehow, which is crazy, is deeply misogynistic. And maybe it's misogynistic at such a deep level that you can't perceive your boyfriend's problem with you as a woman, but it's there. And maybe it's there in such a small way that your long campaign to eradicate it is justified. Because he's not a knuckle-dragging, violent, psycho, woman-hating, misogynistic, homophobic, gay-bashing shitbag. He just wasn't exposed to enough gay people to get over his discomfort with them. And that discomfort also tells us a lot often about where a guy is, about how he treats women. Because as the saying goes, straight men sometimes have problems with gay men or are uncomfortable around gay men because they're afraid gay men are going to treat them the way they treat women. All that said, knock yourself out. If you want to work on this guy and bring him around, go for it. I'm really proud of you for being out to him about being bisexual, for challenging him on his homophobia. There will be one less homophobe in the world when you are done with this guy. But if you can't perceive the misogyny at the heart of his homophobia, because homophobia is misogyny's little brother, then this guy's case of the homophobe is minor and treatable. Other guys whose case of the homophobe is major and untreatable, those guys you might not be able to fuck some sense into. Just because you found a guy with a mild case of the homophobes, so mild you can't see the misogyny that informs it, doesn't mean that other listeners out there should embrace the homophobes that they meet or expect that they can have the same effect on the homophobes that they meet. I think you are dating the exception the homophobic exception, not the homophobe rule. And I'm going to add something to my homophobic guys hate women rap, which I hope doesn't disturb you because you're bisexual yourself. Homophobic guys, sometimes they really like dick. And that's what they're afraid of. That they're afraid of their own homosexual desires. That they're projecting their fears onto others. That they are externalizing their internal conflict. When they say, I hate cocksuckers. I hate gay guys. What they're saying sometimes, often enough, Ted Haggard, Marcus Bachman, often what they're saying is, I hate and fear myself. I hate and fear what is inside me. These desires that not just they have, but that I have. And I'm able to police those desires and prevent myself from acting upon them by being the world's biggest, most vocal homophobe. Walls myself off from ever having the freedom to act on these things. So you may eradicate your boyfriend's homophobia and discover that your straight homophobic boyfriend in the end is bi like you. Good luck.
4: Hi, Dan. I have a parenting question for you. I'm the mother of a 12 year old girl, and we recently went to the mall to buy a swimming suit for her. She tried on a number of two pieces, some of which those that were more of a bikini style. I told her were inappropriate for her age. Afterwards, though, I wondered about the message I was sending to her. I don't want her to be ashamed of her body or her clothing choices. So, my question is this Is it inappropriate for tweens to wear bikinis? And if so, how do we message that to our kids while still being sex and body popped?
0: Joining me by phone to help answer this question, Alice Dreger, author of the activist-researcher memoir, Galileo's Middle Finger, just out in paperback, and author of the new and terrific book, The Talk, Helping Your Kids Navigate Sex in the Real World. Hey, Alice, how are you doing?
10: Good, Dan. Thanks for having me again.
0: Thanks for coming back on the show. Before we get to the question, tell us about the new book.
10: Sure. So it's right now only available as an Amazon Kindle single, but it'll be out in paper soon. And basically, it's a cheap... Short book meant to help parents understand how to talk with their kids throughout the course of their lives about sex, but also about other difficult issues. And basically, what I recommend is that we try as much as possible when we're talking to our kids to pull away from the kind of language that's judging everything all the time and just try to have descriptive language. Talk about what exists as opposed to judging everything. And that sets up a kind of communication style with your kid. That allows them to come to you and feel like they can get information without constantly being judged for everything they're asking you about.
0: Mm-hmm. And the book, I, I read it. It's terrific. And it grew out of your now famous viral live tweeting of your son's <laughs> sex education class. Tell Remind people Indeed. what that was about and tell people where they can find that.
10: Sure. So, you know, we had raised our kid in this style of talking frankly and openly about sex and about information and what we know and don't know about sex. And so when my kid hit high school and he was getting his latest round of sex ed, they were coming in to teach abstinence um, from sex until marriage. And he came home sort of gritting his teeth and said, you won't believe it, and then started telling me about what they were learning. And his attitude was, I'm going to look it up. And he did. And he found the evidence that I had referred to that shows that abstinence education does not reduce STD rates among teens. It doesn't reduce unwanted pregnancies. And what it basically does is teach that shame, sex is shameful. And I don't want my kid thinking sex is shameful, partly because I want to enjoy his sex life, but... Sorry, I want him to enjoy a sex life. <laughs> but when you teach kids that sex is shameful, they drive it underground and that becomes dangerous. They think they can't talk to you about it. They can't come to you if they're having a problem. So I wanted to make sure he gets the idea that sex is pleasurable in our lives and that it's something we can feel comfortable talking about, um, and especially in terms of you know making sure we feel emotionally and physically safe in terms of where we're exploring sexually so um so I went into his class the next day because he asked me to come watch what was going on and it turned out the internet was turned on and so I was I decided to just live tweet it from the back of the room and at the time I didn't have very many followers on Twitter but because I was really new to Twitter but it took off immediately and um went insanely viral and by the time my son came home from school I remember he was walking up the front steps and I was sitting there waiting for him. And <laughs> I said, I have to tell you that, um, we're on box and salon and MTV called and wants to interview you. And he said, what's MTV?
0: <laughs> oh my God. Way to break some <laughs> MTV executives hearts right there.
10: I know. Right. I know this. Well, he's a geek. He only listens to classical music, but, um, so, so we, we talked about it and, um, you know, I couldn't couldn't pull it back once it was out there. And I remember, well, you counseled me that, you know, we had to make the most of it in terms of encouraging other parents to know what was going on in school. So I did that and tried to encourage a lot of liberal parents, because what happens is conservative parents go and interfere at school. And we good liberal parents think, oh, we're not the type who interfere with education, and we're glad they're teaching sex at all. And so mm-hmm. we're just not going to do anything. But in fact, you really do have to go and see what's going on. In fact, the next day, if I if I had not live tweeted it and it had not gone viral, they were g- the same guest educators that we later found out were Christian pro life people were going to come back and hand out virginity pledge cards and push them on our kids in our public school, being oh, paid god. for with our public tax dollars. So it was pretty outrageous.
0: Oh my god! So
10: then a lot of parents came to me and said, "How come your kid seems pretty calm and cool and looks stuff up?" And I said, well, maybe it's time to sort of write down what we did in terms of trying to use this approach to talking with our son in ways that as much as possible don't engage judging language or what we call normative language, but tries to just engage the descriptive level so that he feels like when he comes to us, we can talk calmly about stuff and that we're not judging him all the time so that he feels safe.
0: Give us an example where the difference between judging language and descriptive language when a topic comes up, how how does that play out?
10: Sure. So um, I mean, I give an example uh, in the book, for example, when he came home from preschool one day and said that his friend George said that men can't marry other men, that gay men can't get married. And he was real. My son was really upset about this because we have friends, Brian and Steve, who our son assumed were married, but in fact, were not married because legally they couldn't be married. So our son was really upset. And rather than saying to him, you know, George is just a bigot or his parents are bigots and why would they say that? I tried to disengage from the normative language and say to my son, well, it's." It's true that legally speaking, in most places in the world, gay men cannot get married and lesbian women cannot marry each other. And we pulled out the globe and we talked about where at that point it was legal and all the places it was still illegal. And I explained to him how history works, that this would probably go forward, but that right now the laws were in this way. And I asked him how he felt about it rather than telling him how I felt. And he talked about how he felt that this was really unfair. And so we talked about that and I let him do the sort of judging stuff, but but I just kept it at the descriptive level. And that allowed him to sort of come back off the sort of frantic feeling around this issue that he understood to be an issue of love, but also an issue of sex. I mean, he was little kids begin to get that sex and love has things to do with each other when you become an adult. Mm-hmm. So we were able to sort of pull it back and have that descriptive conversation. And that meant, too, that he could go back and still be friends with George and explain to George that, you know, legally speaking, George had it right, but that he felt like this was going to change in the world and this was something that needed changing. So they were able to sort of unpack it that way. And when we've been able to do that, when we talk about sex stuff, it means he can come and he can say, you know, I heard this word such and such. What does it mean? And rather than me freaking out, where did he learn, you know, golden showers or
5: blowjob or whatever
10: the word was at the time. I would just say to him, that's what this term means. And I would describe it. And as much as possible, just try to simply describe stuff. And it allowed him to keep coming back to me without me sort of freaking out saying, who taught you that word? Or, you know, little kids aren't supposed to know that stuff or anything like that. Just just try to signal to him that there was nothing we couldn't talk about, that there was not a need to be engaged at the shame or the pride level. This was just something that was in the world and we could talk about it.
0: All right. So let's talk about this call, which touches on perhaps issues of shame. The 12-year-old wants to buy what her mother thinks is an inappropriate swimsuit, a bikini that's a little too sex bomb in mom's opinion. How can she have that conversation? Is it appropriate for a mom to say, I don't want you to buy that or I'm not buying that for you because it's too sexual? It sexualizes you in a way that's inappropriate for your age. How do you have that conversation?
5: So
10: it's, first of all, it's totally appropriate for parents to be looking for places where their kids might get in trouble in terms of sexual situations, because their kids will not be as sophisticated as they are. So the mother's instincts are the same as my instincts would be, which would be to recognize that her daughter is about to sexualize herself in a way that might make her vulnerable to some people who are not such nice people. And so, um, again, this is one of those places where I would try to go to the descriptive language. One of the things I would try to do is sit down with a girl and say, look there is context to how we present our bodies. And so, you know, there are places where we're naked and there's places where we have clothing on and places where we have lots of clothing on or less clothing. And this is one of those contexts where we have to think about how people are going to be reacting to you based on how much of your body you're showing. And if it's just you and your other girlfriends hanging out at a private pool in the backyard, then, you know, wearing a skimpy bathing suit is not that big a deal because they're not going to sexualize you. But if you're going to go to the town pool, or you're going to go to the beach and there's going to be guys and women who might look at your body and begin to see it in a sexual way, then you're kind of engaging with them in a way that for a 12 year old is kind of an adult way to engage. And it's not, you know, the kind of thing that you, you just don't think about, you got to start thinking about what are the ways in which I'm engaging people in terms of my body, because you're getting to that age where people are beginning to think of you in terms of maturity and you're going to start thinking about sex. They're going to start thinking about sex. So let's think about the context here in terms of how you feel about engaging with them in terms of how they're seeing your body. How do you want your body to be seen? And where are we going to go from there? And I think in, in that way, you can sort of take it away from the sort of, you know, cover up your body, young lady kind of attitude where it would be very shaming and very judgmental. Mm-hmm. And instead, get her to think about the ways in which she's going to begin to engage other people and people are going to engage her in terms of sexual relations. I would say, name it say that when we get naked, as we get older, issues of sex get implicated. They start to become active in people's minds. So as we get older, we actually think more about what we're showing in terms of our bodies and the way we're presenting our bodies. So we got to really think carefully about that in terms of what do we want to have
0: happen to us in the world. And what if the 12-year-old goes... Does that make sense? uh, Yeah, it makes total sense. But what if mom lays that out for the 12-year-old and the 12-year-old goes... I want people to see me that way. I'm ready to be objectified in that way. I'm inviting that kind of attention that you think I'm too young for and not ready for. I want that. I want the boys to notice me. What if that's what she hears from her daughter?
10: Yeah, I would have the conversation about how 12 years old is pretty young to beginning to, to start engaging in sexual relations in that way and remind the girl that legally speaking, she's not legally capable of consenting at the sex well, no, and no, the no, reason no, no, for that. She,
0: she, maybe she's not saying, and maybe I'm creating a more sophisticated 12-year-old girl for for sake of argument, maybe she's not saying, I want to have sex with the boys, but I want the boys to notice me. I want to be liked by the boys. And this is how it's done, mom. <laughs>
4: Yeah,
10: well, I I think then, you know, you have that conversation, and at some level, you've got to decide for yourself as a parent, do you feel like your daughter is safe in that circumstance? And if if you believe that she's going to be safe in that way, that in other words, people are going to sexualize her, but she's not physically going to be touched, she's not going to be have her picture on the internet in ways that are going to torment her or that sort of thing. If you recognize that it's a safe situation, although one that, you know, is psychologically a little dicey in terms of where she's going, I think there are ways you can let her make that decision and support her in that decision. But if there are issues of safety that are implicated there, it's not unreasonable for parents to pull back and say, you know, This this in, In this way, where you're going to be, I have a concern about this. I know some people are going to say I'm blaming rape victims, but I'm really not. I'm trying to be realistic about the world with regard to what happens to girls and boys also at the age of 12. And we, we have to recognize that for kids at that age, there are some people who are going to be predatory on them. And I don't think it's unreasonable for a kid at that age of 12, especially if she's that sophisticated, to have an open conversation about sexual predators and to talk to her very frankly about there are going to be some people who are predatory. But aren't
0: the predators going to prey on kids, whether they're wearing holly hobby swimsuits, uh, up up to the neck, Mormon style, or whether they're wearing something that's more revealing?
10: If you read what predators say and you look at the studies of what predators say, they go where they think they can get away with it. And when they see a kid who seems to be vulnerable and unprotected, they will typically go for those kids more. Now, that just doesn't mean in terms of clothing. That means in terms of parents who seem to be checked out, for example. Mm -hmm. There's a reason, for example, Jerry Sandusky went after kids who were kids of single parents, right, who needed a coach in their life, because he recognized that those are kids who are vulnerable and easily preyed upon. So I think it's not unreasonable in this circumstance to have a conversation with her about the problem of sexual predators and to talk with her about what are the ways you're going to think about protecting yourself from people who are not going to be good to you in terms of treating you in a way that deals with you in a way that's respectful and agrees with your self-integrity. Is
0: the solution get both kinds of swimsuits? Because there might be pool parties at which in that particular context she's safe and it's you know, a pool party, a private pool party at somebody's house and there's going to be her friends there who are girls and not open to the public and the boys whose interest she's interested in peaking. And that might be an appropriate swimsuit for that party in that context and a different kind of swimsuit for different places.
10: I'll tell you a secret, Dan. I wear different lingerie to bed with my husband than I when I do when I'm staying alone at a hotel where the smoke alarm might go off. (laughs) Yes, I do. I do think it's appropriate to think about, you know, the context of where you are in terms of the ways that your body is being presented as a, as a sexual body. So
0: the solution in this conversation, this hypothetical conversation for this mom and her daughter is not this swimsuit or that swimsuit, but maybe both swimsuits and there are times and places where one may be more appropriate and make you more comfortable, feel more comfortable and safer than the other.
10: Sure. I mean, there's a, and you can use the the analogy of pajamas and what we're wearing to bed or the analogy, for example, of who we shower with naked versus who we don't, the people we feel comfortable with and the people we don't. So it's all on a sliding scale, how we present our bodies. And, you know, I think talking about it that way with her and saying, you got to think about the ways that you're presenting your body in such a way that you're going to attract attention. Is it attention you really want to have? When you get attention you don't want, what are the ways that we can talk about the ways in which you're going to defend yourself against that kind of stuff? And have that conversation about if somebody is looking at you in a way that you don't like, how are you going to respond to that? And begin to even role model that with the kid and help her understand how to do that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, look. I don't really freak out, right, if my son is taking showers with the other kids on, a, on the same team. But if my neighbor next door were to invite him over for a private shower, I'd be a little <laughs> concerned, right?
0: As would so, are.
4: So there
10: are different contexts for different amounts of skin being shown. Absolutely.
0: All right. Can you stick around for one more question?
8: Yeah, sure. Hello, I'm the mother of a 15-year-old Girl, who I'm pretty sure is heterosexual, and she just recently told me that she has been watching a lot of pornography on online, um, which I'm not particularly surprised because she's pretty healthy. But I'm concerned about the quality of what she's watching. I would prefer, you know, that she watch things that aren't only portraying male pleasure and violence against women and um i was wondering if there was any um erotica sites that i could steer her towards that would answer a lot of her questions and curiosity but not be damaging in the portrayal of women
0: what does the porn conversation look like with your approach that you unpack in your new book
8: We actually had this
10: conversation with our son because he was getting really active online, playing a lot of video games and watching a lot of YouTube videos. And we realized, you know, it's only a matter of time right before he wanders into porn. Um, And certainly because his other friends are hanging out with him, it's going to it's going to happen. So we needed to have the conversation. So in this case, as I talk about in the book, my husband actually led with it because We felt like he would do a better job with it in terms of um, being a man talking to a boy. But that said, I think you can totally cross-gender these conversations in terms of fathers talking to daughters and mothers talking to sons. What, What we explained to him is what pornography is. So we described that. We said pornography is usually visual stimulation that is designed to give you a sexual arousal. So it's specifically meant to turn you on. And that's why people use it, because sexual arousal can feel really good a lot of the time. And the idea behind it is that it feels good. So we we explained to him that is what porn is. And some porn is very light porn. So it might be stuff we see in advertising might approach porn or it can be very heavy, like it can involve multiple people and show very explicit sexual acts. And we suggested to him that if he wandered into porn, that he monitor his own feelings very carefully. And if it was giving him feelings that were negative to recognize that that was not the point of pornography was to have negative feelings and to shut it down and to walk away from it and go somewhere else in terms of what he was interested in. But then also to recognize that sometimes the way pornography gets produced is through sexual exploitation. And we talked about ways to spot some of that in terms of if it looked like people were unhappy in the situation or if they seemed to be certainly underage, that that was important to, to get away from that stuff and that he should recognize that sometimes people did pornography because it felt really good. And, you know, from our point of view, morally, we don't have any issue with that, but sometimes people don't. And to try to recognize that, participation in watching porn meant being aware of where it came from and how it got produced and to really try to understand what what your reaction is to it. I know this mother talked about trying to turn her daughter onto, you know, women positive porn sites. I don't recommend picking the porn for your kids. (laughs) I think... I think that's not one of the things we should do for our children, and in fact, I suspect child protective services might have a word with you if they found out <laughs> well, that I, were, I would have to disagree
0: um, I would have to disagree i'd have to jump in maybe mildly disagree because a lot of the you know a lot of the porn that's produced out there, and I sometimes think the easiest porn to stumble across is this porn that this mother <laughs> has concerns with that may be portraying violence that may be produced unethically and making people miserable and unhappy. Um and you know, and putting images in her daughter's head that uh need to be countered or balanced by other images of porn and, and those are I think harder to find and and my so my recommendation to a lot of parents is just get on Twitter and follow some feminist porn producers, follow Tristan Taramino. uh follow and read Violet Blue's blog, and you'll find your way to a whole world of feminist porn that's a lot of it's straight and a lot of it's really uh you know it still is intense it's still sexy, but it's going to be more varied and it's not going to be in, the mo- in most cases unethically produced. But it, it takes a little bit more digging to find that. And so can you say to a kid, like, don't just end at Xtube or Pornhub. There's others, other porn out there. Or will Child Protective Services come and drag you away for having that kind of consumption conversation with your kid about pornography?
10: So I, I guess what I would say is I agree with you and what I just want to be clear about is I'm not talking about like dialing in the the URL, right, the URL and say, let's watch some porn together, but rather just say there are keywords you can look for. And we have done this with our son. We have suggested, for example, that looking for feminist porn, women positive porn, you know, there, that there are keywords that you can use to look for porn that is much less likely to be exploitative and much more likely to give you the kind of more realistic images, if at all possible, in terms of what you're going to be approaching. But one of the things we said to our son, and I think this is important for parents to have this conversation, is ultimately where your sex life is going to be lived is in your own body. And so Part of what you want to do is make sure you remain realistic kind of about what your own body feels like and what your body will feel like with other people. And one of the challenges in watching porn is that so much of it is so unrealistic that if you watch a lot of it before you actually become sexually active yourself... You may have a whole strange view of the way sex is really going to work that may be quite unrealistic. And so we've, you know, made a point of saying it's not a bad thing to sort of think about in your head what turns you on to make sure you're getting to know your own body in terms of we talk openly about masturbation and talk about, you know, that it's perfectly normal and extremely common (laughs) And I think encouraging kids to not overdo it before they are going out into the world themselves and become sexual beings is not an unreasonable thing to do so that they don't get the unrealistic stuff. So I think keyword searching, giving kids clues about keywords is an absolutely good idea in terms of looking for non-exploitative work. Um, but I would not sit down and like search porn sites together. I, I, that, that idea makes me uncomfortable in part because I think you're inserting yourself at that point into your child's sexual life in ways that they deserve autonomy.
0: The Talk, Helping Your Kids Navigate Sex in the Real World by Alice Dreger, available now as an Amazon Kindle single. Thanks so much for speaking with us today, Alice. Always great to have you.
10: Thanks, Dan.
11: Hi. I am a married woman living in the Midwest. I am somewhat of a social justice warrior, and when my friends say uh, racist, sexist, or homophobic things, or even not friends, just like acquaintances or people around me say these types of things, I will call them out. And um, because I feel like as a white woman, that is my responsibility to call out racist stuff or stuff that I can use my privilege to help correct. Um, This sometimes has had people call me dramatic or say I'm causing drama or causing fights unnecessarily, and it especially irritates my husband. He basically wants me to stop doing this altogether altogether. And I'm not going to because I think it's important. So um, I'm looking for tips on how to navigate this situation. I already try to use the positive, negative, positive sandwich when making critiques of other people's statements like, I understand where you're coming from, but this is problematic because of this, but I understand that you have a good heart sort of thing. So if there are other tips that you have for confronting this or coming off, as less of a drama queen, I guess, specifically to my husband, in regards to my social justice love, that would be incredibly great.
0: First of all, I have to call you out on using the expression social justice warrior because I used that once on Twitter and I was attacked by, I guess, social justice kittens because you're not supposed to use that anymore. Or that was a joking self-reference that people who are social justice... Can't say warriors, campaigners, fans, acolytes would use like, you know, snarkily in reference to themselves. But then gamer gators and other assholes and right wing shitbags online seized on it and now use it as an insult uh, directed against people who are interested in social justice. So I have to call you out on that. You have to stop describing yourself yeah. <laughs> as a social justice warrior. Because that is an insult to your fellow social justice kittens, or whatever we're supposed to call them. That. People. People.
11: Uh, I guess I just use it like I know that, and so I kind of use it as like a kind of reclaiming way. I guess I don't <laughs> you, know. Just, you use it like, ironically. Fem- well, that's what I thought yeah. I was doing when yeah. I used
0: it on Twitter, I, but I got a, I got swarmed by social justice, CT flies, or whatever I also the fuck. Call
11: myself a feminist killjoy a little bit. Okay, so, I I'll just say that from. I'm a feminist killjoy.
0: I I call myself an obnoxious faggot, you know, because I am. (laughs) Yeah. In the same spirit. I'm calling though – because I wanted some examples uh, because I'm generally in favor of you know when it's a room full of white people and somebody says something shitty and racist that it's important that somebody in the room speak up. If it's a room full of cisgendered people and somebody says something transphobic, important that somebody speak up. That's when you know you've reached a kind of cultural tipping point when it's the not racist or not sexist or not homophobic or not transphobic person in a room full of – other people who are not none of those things speaking up. That's when you know you've reached a cultural tipping point where this kind of hatred is unacceptable. So I'm generally in favor of what you're doing. And I've encouraged people to do what you're doing in the past. But if you're doing it in such a way that it is annoying your husband and everyone around you, I wonder if you're not doing it wrong or doing it too much or perceiving racism or sexism or transphobia or homophobia or whatever – where others are not? Are you doing the Dakota ring thing? Because there are some people out there in social justice land who think it makes them the best social justice warrior of all when they can spot the racism or the sexism or the transphobia that nobody else can see. And those people are tiresome to be around because sometimes they're seeing shit that ain't there.
11: Yeah, um, I have considered that actually. And I think it's important to note that I also live in missouri so we're not like the most
0: oh my god where you have your work cut out for you
11: yes so um i think that's important to note uh and so i really try to temper it and be humorous and be i don't know not like you know i don't have enough energy to call uh, to call out every time somebody in my surroundings i try not to be friends general friends with I, those type of people, but like mm-hmm. when somebody does something like vaguely sexist and they don't even realize it here, I try to like say something about it and kind of just be like, give me, Hey, give you know, me an like, example. Ca- give me an example. I want, I want calling, an exam- calling something gay is not acceptable. Okay. That's gay." I'll be like, really? Is that like, you know, two men building a life together and going and shopping and stuff. You know, I like, I try to point out that it's ridiculous, somewhat like funny and ridiculous. And what I feel is like a ridiculous way, uh-huh. but I'm not sure. And, um, I don't know. I think.
0: But maybe your husband's issue is that since you live in Missouri and there are so many opportunities that basically anytime you're awake and your mouth is moving, this is all you're talking about.
11: Yes. <laughs> that is the problem. And well, it's not all that I, I end up spending like time on the, you know, like somebody posts something that is like, like on National Women's Day, somebody put like a friend of a friend posted a, um, a picture of happy National Women's Day in a giant pileup. Um, And I kind of had, you know, like, like the, oh, women are terrible drivers, happy with the National Women's Day. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like spent a lot of time like being like, this is really sexist. And they were like, it's just a joke. There's still a lot of people posting sexist or racist memes here. the It's just a joke. And so I don't know how to point. I don't know. Sometimes it's like.
0: And then at that moment, you're the feminist killjoy going, it's just a sexist joke.
11: It's a really sexist joke that perpetrates sometimes harmful stereotypes.
0: Okay. I, think, I think what you need to do is <laughs> choose the times when you're going to say, ha ha, not funny, kind of sexist. And then the times when you're going to really unpack it. This perpetuates harmful yeah. stereotypes. If every time, because it's such a high fire environment where you are, there's going to be so many opportunities for you to be social justice warrioring that if every time you social justice <laughs> war, it is unpacked at great length, and you get to the da 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 that might be exhausting to be around. But you can, like, check it. You can say, hey, that's kind of sexist. I don't think that's funny. And then move the fuck on. And then pick the yeah. times when you're really going to lay into somebody.
11: See, I think the problem is if when I say that, somebody else will always say something back, and then I have a really hard time not saying something back to that thing. So I guess I just have to just like
0: not (laughs) get a meme get a meme if it's online get a meme you can blast back at them that's That's something funny that's funny go to eye-rolling meme and engage with people who want to engage with you about these things because some people do honestly say something shitty and then are open to being engaged about it but if i were your boyfriend and like every time we went out it it meant there was probably a 99.99 percent chance because we're in missouri that this is going to go down, that you're going to throw down with somebody, that might get kind of exhausting.
11: I, I think sometimes I tend to come off, I get, I like, I'm an overexplainer in general, mm-hmm. and I tend to come off a little bit like know it all ish. So, like, I know I have to check my tone and there's a better way to do things. And I think about that after I've had an interaction. It's too,
0: it's too, bad, you're, it's too bad you're not a man because we could just call it mansplaining and chalk it up to that. <laughs> yeah. But, but maybe you have a little mansplainer in you.
11: I, I, yeah, I think that they're,
0: yeah. <laughs> I mean, people don't want to be lectured, but some people, but, but, but we say, I say that people don't want to be lectured. Cognizant of the fact that there are people out there who fucking need to be lectured. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> and so you as a lecturer, as someone who is prone to that kind of lecturing, you need to maybe have a better filter, a better sense about when is an appropriate moment to jump in and lecture. You know, if you're out to dinner mm-hmm. with your boyfriend and the waiter says something, you know, hands your boyfriend the check after you put your credit card on it and brings it back and hands it to him. There might be yeah. moments where you want to like roll your eyes and make eye contact with your boyfriend and he knows and you know, but you don't have to get up and lecture the waiter and ask to speak to the manager, yeah, and you can let something <laughs> slide and chalk it up to Missouri and annoying without having to seize every opportunity to run that person to ground, yeah. <laughs> And if your it's, boyfriend sees you yeah. make that effort, if your boyfriend sees you letting something slide, even if you guys are making eye contact and you're going, uh, you know, if you weren't here, I might go off. Those times then when you do choose to go off, because it's so egregious that you have to, if he's seen you at other times be like, uh, Missouri, I'm going to let it slide, but Jesus Christ, Missouri, he might be more indulgent or or more not indulgent. You don't need him to indulge you to like speak up for yourself or people of color or trans people or queers or whatever, but he might be less annoyed by it when it does go down. Yeah, There have been other moments when he's seen you let it slide for his own peace of mind.
11: That's an incredibly good point. That's going to be really helpful. You
0: know, when you're with somebody and they're lecturing the waiter, you kind of feel like you're lecturing the waiter too.
11: Yeah. I think that's exactly what he's feeling is he's like we have like a, a co-reputation and I'm getting your reputation about these sorts of things because we're like a couple.
0: And if you're Debbie Social Justice Downer at every inv- <laughs> every like party <laughs> and every dinner party and every let's go out for drinks then and you come with him, he's going to get fewer invitations yeah. if it means Debbie Social Justice Downer is going to be there.
11: I'm not telling you. Yeah, I'm really funny too, though. Oh, good, good. I'm glad to hear it. I'm not telling you not to
0: speak up because I'm pro speaking up. I'm pro confronting, but moderation in all things. (laughs) Yeah, no one to pick your battles and no one to let something slide. And sometimes you let something slide that you don't wouldn't wouldn't really want to let slide or don't want to let slide out of consideration for other people's feelings or your partner's feelings.
11: Yeah, totally. I have yeah, the same I, problem. I, I, it's, it's, it's hard. <laughs> That's moderation. Is,
0: yeah. And I'm with you. I, the, I struggle with that same how to moderate this impulse because I will get in people's faces. And my husband is not, does not do that except on Facebook, except about Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. He doesn't like to get in people's faces. He doesn't like to have those kinds of confrontations. And some part of my Irish Catholic argumentative drunken soul really loves them.
11: Me too. It's the exact same dynamic. He does not. He is very, he actually does limited Facebooking in general just because he doesn't like to put any sort of statement out of the world. So it's like a little bit of a.
0: That's the frame to look at it through. For you, these confrontations or these calling outs or these kind of engagements or arguments, it's kind of like bowling and you love to bowl. Yeah. And he hates bowling and doesn't like to be dragged off to go bowling with you. And so there may be times when he's not there fucking bowl and times when he's there and you're like, you know what? <laughs> Suddenly we're in the bowling alley, but you, let's leave. Like we don't have to go bowling right now. Cause you don't like bowling. I'll bowl sometime when you're not around. Cause I love to bowl.
11: Yes. Yes. That's, this has been so helpful. <laughs> thank you. I just didn't understand. I was like, it's my interest. Why does he care? So yes. Thank you so much. Good
0: luck.
12: Hey Dan. Uh, I'm a reasonably uh, successful dater. I'm in a, currently in an open relationship and have a handful of partners and, you know, throughout my life, I've typically had a good success dating. But one thing that I've always been terrible at is approaching people in public places, whether that's, you know, a bar or on the train. And, um, you know, case in point, uh, I was on my way home today and uh, a lady sat across from me on the train and we were clearly eye flirting uh, back and forth. And then when she got off, we both did that thing where we looked at each other as she was leaving. And then, uh, we did it again (laughs) as she was walking away on the platform. Uh, so there was clearly something there, an attraction there, but I just have never, um, you know, through, a, a bunch of reasons, um, Mostly being sort of a naturally shy person, but have never really been good at just approaching someone, even if there's obviously you know mutual interest on both sides. So yeah, what's the best way to go about doing that? Uh, obviously, I don't want to use any cheesy stupid pickup lines, but I guess that's sort of the, the most difficult thing for me is just how do you how do you kind of cut through that ice and, and broach uh, a conversation?
0: I'm really torn about how to respond to your question because. On the one hand, I want women to be able to exist in the world and be on trains and be on buses and walk down the street without being sexually harassed, without being approached by men who, through dickful thinking, have convinced themselves that this woman, either by merely existing or by the fact that she briefly made eye contact with them, is dying to fuck them or has expressed some sort of interest in them. Not always the case. Often women are approached by men who believe that the women have somehow indicated an interest, who are not interested at all and didn't do anything to express any interest. On the other hand, I want people to get laid. And it seems to me that if somebody spent an entire train journey eye-fucking you and making eye contact with you and smiling at you, particularly with women being the ones who expect to be approached by the man and not the other way around, with that being also a default setting – That you're able to then approach. You just have to approach in a way that gives them an out and doesn't trap them. You don't back them into a corner. Don't back a woman into a corner. Don't make her feel any more unsafe than an unwelcome advance is already going to make her feel unsafe if indeed the advance is unwelcome if you've misread her. So to write your phone number on a little piece of paper and hand it to her and say – Sorry if this is awkward or if I'm misreading this, but give me a call sometime if you want to hang out. And then back the fuck away. She's got your phone number. To do it as she is leaving, as she has an escape, may be the most sensitive time to do it. And only do it straight, guys, when you have a reasonable expectation that it is going to be welcome. Interrogate your assumptions and interrogate your dick. Make sure it's not dickful thinking that is leading you to round up a polite nod because you were passing each other in the hallway or on the, in the train on the way to your seats for, she wants me. There are too many straight guys out there who round up any sort of interaction with a woman they find attractive to, she wants me. If you are sure that it is more than just a passing social acknowledgement, but actually a telegraphing of some other interest, pass her your phone number and then back the fuck away in case you were wrong.
13: Hey Dan, I'm a straight male student at a law school in the Northeast. I'm calling about a proposal that some students at my school are advocating, which calls for converting the main public bathrooms in the law school into gender neutral bathrooms. The advocates argue that separately designated male and female bathrooms creates an emotional burden for trans and gender nonconforming students. And that switching to gender neutral bathrooms would make the school a safer and more welcoming place. Apparently, some of our peer schools have already begun similar conversion. To be clear, we're talking about your typical multi-occupancy public restroom, not bathrooms that are used by one person at a time. Personally, I have no problem opening up all bathrooms to whoever wants to use them. But one aspect of the plan bothers me. They propose to remove the urinals. I happen to really like urinals. They're easier, faster, and more pleasant to use than a toilet in a stall. I would be fine with using a urinal in a bathroom that welcomed people of all genders, but getting rid of urinals with the intention of making everyone feel comfortable is a solution that frankly, I'm not cool with. What do you think? Is preserving urinals a reasonable thing to ask, or am I being an asshole who is prioritizing my convenience over gender equality and inclusiveness?
0: I don't think you're being an asshole, but I think you haven't thought this all the way through. Let's picture a gender-neutral bathroom with a row of stalls and a row of urinals. If you are trans and you are a trans man and you go in and out of this bathroom all the time and you always use the stall, you will essentially, potentially, possibly be outing yourself to others in your school as trans and not everybody who's trans is comfortable being out as trans in all circumstances to all people at all times. If everybody just has to enter a stall, whether they're going to stand to pee or sit to pee or poop, then nobody's outing themselves by choosing the stalls. You see what I mean? So the, the presence of urinals is going to create a caste system of sorts or a hierarchy of peers. There are the people who can stand to pee and are going to use the urinals and the people who, when they pee, must sit, regardless of their gender identity. So I can see in the sort of crazy overabundance of sensitivity toward this particular issue, why it would make sense to take the urinals out because their presence might make some people feel that they are being outed by never opting to use the urinal. You walk in to a bathroom with your friend that you study with and he walks up to the urinal and you walk up to the stall And you're not taking a shit. Now he knows potentially you're either trans, you have to sit, you're pee shy in a crazy way. You've given that person information about you, you shared information by dint of that choice that you may not be comfortable sharing or ready to share with that particular person. So it is super duper considerate and super duper sensitive to remove the urinals that that one person or handful of people at your school aren't made to feel discomforted. But take comfort, even if they pull all the urinals out of the bathrooms in your law school, even if they pull all the urinals out of every bathroom in your university or at your university, there are still plenty of urinals for you out there in the world that you will be able to enjoy after you get out of college or while you're at college. You miss the urinals, you can take a walk around the corner to the nearest Denny's or whatever, and I bet you'll find urinals there still.
13: Hey, Dan, this is in response to episode 496, where the lady was asking if there was anything that could be done to try out a sex toy before you buy it. Obviously, you guys went over it and said that that wasn't the case, but there is a really great blog and online comic called ojoysextoy.com that's run by a really great person. But she reviews sex toys and does it without pity and has been just a great resource for me and my partners to uh, look at toys, both that we're considering buying, and see what she thinks about
4: Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. I am a manager for a donation station for Goodwill, one of the largest in the Pacific Northwest. You would not believe how many sex toys we get all the time. Swings, whips, dildos. Please, please, please do me a favor. Do not donate these items. Throw them away yourself.
13: Hi, I'm calling uh, in regards to the guy from episode 496 who was worried if his sex toys were going to have emotional baggage to use with another partner. Yeah, man, just uh, I've had sort of the same issue where you want to buy something and it costs money. You don't have to buy something new every time. So here's what tends to work uh, pretty well is buy whatever toys you want uh, for yourself or to use on somebody else and keep the packaging. Don't throw that stuff away, uh, especially if you can put the items back in the packaging, works even better. And then if you get a new partner, you just tell them, hey, I bought us you know, you talk about it first and you say, hey, I bought us a surprise. I got it in the mail. It's at my place. And then you bring it out with the packaging like it's a brand new toy and they need to be none the wiser that you'd ever used it with anybody else. Then they don't have to worry about the emotional baggage. As far as they know it's new
0: all right we're gonna leave it there 206 302 2064 is the number here at the savage love cast if you want to record a question or a comment for a future show give us a buzz 206 302 2064 follow me on twitter at fake dan savage follow alice dreger on twitter at alice dreger the savage love cast is produced every week by nancy Hartunian. And me and Nancy and the tech savvy at Risk Youth, we will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.